You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, recording on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, and we're going to talk all things iPad, iPhone, Apple TV, stocks, and more. Joining me is Supreme Editor-in-Chief, Overlord of All He Sees, Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor, how's it going? You know, we said we were going to record this podcast from the moon, but sadly, I'm in North Carolina and you're in New York. Mm -hmm. Tim Cook was in New York recently. He was, yes. He came out to talk to Jim Cramer. Yeah, he was on Mad Money this week, um, which, of course, upset a lot of people who don't like Jim Cramer and don't think that Tim Cook should be on there. But there's a lot of people that live in some sort of a fantasy land where Apple can ignore Wall Street and just kind of do their own thing and... They can't really do that. So this kind of goes back to the discussion we had last week about how Apple's quarter was disappointing. Um, yes, Apple made a lot of money, and it was you know their second most successful March quarter ever. But the company had seen growth for you know 14 straight years or whatever the heck it was. So the fact that they didn't grow for the first time in that long was disappointing. So this is what Tim Cook has to do. He has to go and appear on Jim Cramer's Mad Money, which is a just as much of a game show as it is a financial show. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's just kind of the way that, that the game is played. And so he did a couple of appearances on there today, did a long interview and didn't really say much of anything. You know, they're not going to reveal what they've got coming up or whatever, but they kind of have to do something to, uh, try to stop the bleeding when it comes to the stock price dropping. Now for all the people who think that cook should not have gone to talk to Kramer, who should he have gone to talk with? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't really have much of a problem with him going to talk to Kramer because, you know, if you want to get some publicity and get your message out there um, and reach out to investors and a wider audience as well um, of maybe more casual people, it's probably the best place to go. He's probably, you know, the biggest name on, on that sort of stage. Um, you know, you could always do sit down interviews with Bloomberg and stuff, and they've done those before, too. But um, I think this was aimed more at the daily, uh, you know, stock trader kind of audience. Um, and that's why he goes on this show. So he didn't really say much of anything. He, he downplayed concerns over China. He's pretty bullish on prospects in India, um, which are the two main concerns with investors right now, because smartphone markets have matured in, in the West. Um, you're not going to see huge year-over-year increases in the U.S. when saturation of smartphones is so high. So the potential for growth really is in a lot of these mer- emerging markets, as they call the brick uh, uh, markets. And so um, Tim Cook remains bullish on those and thinks things are going to turn around, especially in China, where sales were off 26% year-over-year last quarter. Um, and he's got to get out there and push his message to try to get investors to um, at least, you know, stabilize the stock um, and, and stop selling off because uh, they had uh, the longest streak of losses in, in almost two decades uh, after that earnings report. Yeah, but, you know, Carl Icahn, who who is a very active investor, he's an activist investor, um, said he divested himself of all of the Apple stock because of China and how Apple and China are getting along or not getting along as the case may be. Yeah, he yeah, he thinks that the Chinese government could come in and make things very difficult for Apple and so he says that he's concerned so he sold all of his positions in Apple, but he still thinks they're a great company. I mean, this guy was also the one that had a 
$220 price target for Apple. So take from it what you will. The, the kind of troubles that Apple's been having in China have been things like the trademark ruling where a leather goods manufacturer is allowed to use the iPhone name on their products because they're not confusingly similar. And, and because the Chinese group was apparently using iPhone on their products before Apple came into China in mm -hmm. 2009. Um, the other things that we've seen have been the the Chinese turning off the iBooks store and the App Store in China. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it, it, it's the Chinese government has been a problem for a lot of companies for a long time, um, and that's nothing new. They don't like outside companies, and you have to kind of go through a process there. Like uh, when Tim Cook had to issue an apology a few years ago in China for I don't even remember what it was. You know, and having your server like they deal with this with Russia too. Where they want the servers hosted there locally. They're going to shut it down. They've had problems with German Germany. Um, they've had problems with the Italian government. Um, obviously, the EU is going after them for taxes in Ireland. Um, Australia is doing stuff with taxes now. There's uh, rumblings about India uh, trying to block uh, sales of used iPhones there. So. You know, international issues are always going to be a concern for when you're doing businesses because a lot of countries want to help promote their own homegrown companies. But, you know, it's not like a lot of these countries are known for making, you know, these particularly great phones or whatever. In China, it's unique because you have these, you know, uh, upstart vendors that are coming in and are now making these low cost um, phones that are starting to gain some traction and you're seeing huge year over year growth for them because they had like no market presence before and now they're getting some. Um, the concern amongst investors would be that they're eating away at Apple's share. Um, I think more, the biggest thing with China, especially with the 26% uh, decline last quarter is just really tough comps. They've seen so much growth last year. Um, and also issues with the timing of the iPhone launches where they're launching earlier now in China and you have these seasonal and cyclical issues and stuff like that. There's a lot of moving parts in play. Um, at the end of the day, um, it's still a disappointment because obviously if you've been growing for so long and seen such tremendous growth, you would like to continue that growth. And Apple and investors are certainly hopeful that with a new iPhone 7 coming in September, supposedly, uh, that perhaps they can return to growth, especially with easier comparisons to the iPhone success launch. And, and what's your opinion here? What, what do you personally think about all this? I think that Wall Street's um, obsession with growth is pretty gross, and it's kind of a joke. Um, you know, as a company, you're going to have ups and downs. You're selling products. You're selling more products than than most companies would dream of selling. Um, and you're making money hand over fist. You have a mountain of cash. Uh, you know, like I was saying last week, there was some journalists who reached out to me and asked me if this is the beginning of the end for Apple. And it's like, are you kidding me? There may be tough times ahead for Apple, you know, tough being relative. Um, but I mean, they have so much money and they continue to sell so many products and generate so much interest that this is just a, this is not, you know, this isn't really a very big deal to me, but on Wall Street, it's a big deal because they they want growth. That's all they're interested in is, are, have you been growing? And Apple was this a huge company that was growing like it was a startup. It was unheard of, un, unseen. So, um, you know, now the darling is Facebook. Facebook made a bunch of cash last quarter. Amazon, um, of course, isn't making a lot of cash because their margins are so thin, but uh, they saw their growth increase and their web services are doing really well. So a lot of investors have 
have shifted their focus there. But a lot of this is short term trading, trying to get rich quick kind of nonsense. Um, in terms of the long term, Apple is a stable company that isn't going anywhere. And so from my perspective, as somebody who does not own stock in Apple and um, does not trade in tech companies, um, I find it all pretty silly. So it, it used to be that, that an, a good investing attitude was if you thought that owning the whole company was worthwhile, if you'd like to own the whole company, then it was reasonable to own a share of the company. And, you know, to stick it out for the long term and to, and, and I'm warning, I'm not giving stock advice. I'm just expressing an opinion here. Um, now it seems like the attitude is what can I do quickly? What can I, what can I do even algorithmically quickly and have the computer place bets for me? It's, it's betting more than it is supporting a company that you believe in or trying to own a company that you believe in. And not for all investors, but for a lot. I mean, especially if you put your money into, you know, a mutual fund or something like that. Um, you're buying into a fund that uh, is trying to make you money and is doing those things on your behalf. So uh, just the nature of, of trading is much different now than uh, than it has been, obviously, in the past. Um, and that's why you see a lot of controversy about Wall Street and, and their attitude and, and the way that they uh, view companies and the way that they treat companies because these companies are not being treated equally. It's not representative of how successful or how valuable a company is. Uh, Apple is a money that made $10 billion in profit last quarter, and that was seen as a disappointment, and no one else is making that much money. So, um, you know, it, it, expectations and, and that sort of thing play a big part there. Also talking about expectations, right? Last time we told people that it was possible that an iPhone 7 would not have a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack, right? We set up everyone's expectations that, that it was possible that the phone might ship without a jack and we'd use the lightning port. Right. And as soon as we said that, out came pictures of a purported iPhone 7 part that have what on it? Headphone jack. <laughs> you know, uh, this this part is is so hard to really tell what the heck's going on when you look at it it's just a cable it's a uh uh it's just a, a ribbon cable with a bunch of pieces on it it's it, a flexible printed circuit it looks very similar to the one in the 6s including placement of the um lightning port and the headphone jack so uh is it there are an some Apple differences it's, it, it's not entirely the same not entirely the same but very similar um and kind of similar to what we've seen in past products where apple kind of tweaks the design but keeps the base same basic idea um is it legit maybe i don't know um it could just as easily be some knockoff chinese company making something that looks like an iphone which happens a lot um I don't, I don't really know what to say of this. Um, the overwhelming amount of evidence has suggested that there will not be a headphone jack. I still would be surprised if they went that far and removed the headphone jack. But, um, yeah, I, it's uh, it's hard to say at this point. It, it, the, the picture is not 100% clear. There was some speculation that maybe they'll leave the headphone jack on the 4.7-inch model and get rid of it on the 5.5-inch model. That doesn't seem like a very Apple-like thing to do to me. Um, I would be very surprised if they did that, but um, I'd also be surprised if they got rid of the headphone jack. So at this point, uh, I, I, I don't really know what to say. It's out there. Um, people can draw their own conclusions, but the only thing I, I can say is that the overwhelming majority of evidence in terms of rumors and leaked schematics have shown an iPhone without a headphone jack. Yeah. Do we know that this... I, I, 
forgive me for being skeptical, but this purported part, do we know for a fact that that's a lightning jack on that flexible printed circuit card? No, because it didn't have a close up on it. So it looks like it could be right, shaped like a, a lightning jack, but you know what else looks kind of like a lightning jack? A USB-C port. So that's, that's my question is it's a photograph taken from the top down, not the end along of the port. So you can't really see into the port to identify what kind of port it is. Yeah. We, we just don't know. Who knows? And Apple could, you know, be making all kinds of different things, too, and and toying around. I mean, I think at this stage in the game, obviously, the design of the iPhone 7 is at least locked down internally. But uh, what they put through their supply chain and what may be coming, you don't really know. I mean, the supply chain knew about an updated four-inch phone for about a year and a half before it launched. So, you know, they start working with their suppliers and testing out stuff well ahead of time. Um, and there were a lot of leak schematics for a four-inch phone with an iPhone 6-style design. Maybe we'll see something like that next year because it didn't come out this year. I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it was just misdirection thrown out by Apple. Maybe it was something Apple considered and then ultimately scrapped. Um, it's hard to say you know, where these things are coming from. I think there's a little bit of truth mixed in there with these ones that don't necessarily pan out. And then there's some misdirection maybe because that's Apple's style. And then you saw one where uh, it was uh, uh, a handset that looked like an iPhone and it turned out it was made by a Chinese manufacturer and the CEO of the company came out and said, actually, that's our phone. So um, it's hard to say. You just can't tell. Right. Well, after our last conversation... I figured out how to have a lightning to headphone adapter. Okay. And it's a little convoluted, but bear with me. It it doesn't make sense fiscally. It's economically a bad decision. So bear with me. The idea is you go with the digital AV connector. So you do lightning to HDMI. Mm -hmm. And then you get a third-party product, either from like J5 Create or Belkin. Get one of their suitable for Apple TV HDMI to VGA adapters that also have a 3.5 headphone headphone port. Mm-hmm. And you connect that to the HDMI on the digital AV connector. So you go lightning to HDMI and then HDMI to VGA that as a byproduct has the headphone connector and you use that headphone connector. Does it work? I got to test it. Yeah, I've got, I've got, it probably. I, I had both parts. I ended up returning the, uh, the HDMI to VGA because I only needed it for a weekend. So I got to go rebuy one of those. But as long as it doesn't require sensing the video first, it might just work. It might, but uh, you know, sometimes is it is it bulky and stupid? Yes. Yeah, with these <laughs> with this daisy chain adapter thing, you know, oh, yeah. you never know what you're going to get. Like when I was testing out adapters to see what I could plug into an iPad, you know, it's it's kind of a guessing game. You plug in some stuff and it works. You plug in some stuff and it doesn't work. Totally, but but uh, I'm going to see if I can't get one of those uh, HDMI to VGAs again when I need one next, and I'll plug it all up because I'll, I've got the digital I'll, AV adapter. I'll be curious to see if it works. We'll see. We'll find out. I mean, why not, right? Why not? Good enough reason to do anything. So you are a big fan of the Apple Pencil. Am I? Yeah. You're a fan enough that you came up with a silly way of mounting it on your iPad Pro. Well, that's just because there is no way of mounting it on your iPad Pro, so I needed something. I mean, I, listen, the, the Apple Pencil is fine. Don't get me wrong. Um, I don't really use it because I don't draw. Um, I have used it maybe three or four times since I got it last fall, and that's been solely to fill out documents, contracts, that sort of stuff, um, where it needed, you know, the alternative would have been me printing it out, writing on it, and then scanning it back in. 
Um, I could just use it to write on the iPad, and I was happy that I had it for those instances. There are applications that allow you to sign documents in the iPad or in the iPhone, for that matter, without having to do any of this stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I, I just use PDF Expert, and I put it in pen mode, and the app doesn't even really officially support the pencil, but just use the pencil works so well um, OS wide with you know the palm rejection and knowing when you're using the pencil that it works fine for the app. Um, I like the pencil more so as a willingness by Apple to expand the input methods on the device um, rather than being you know, so stubborn about the finger fingertip thing. Because as we talked before, I would like to have an optional, not necessary, don't need to do it, uh, some sort of cursor input on the iOS, on iOS devices, specifically on the iPad, whether it be with a mouse or a trackpad. Um, because I think that that would allow more for multitasking and traditional computing usage. Um, but I still think that the iPad out of the box should be the ideal way of using it is with your finger, just like with the pencil. It's an optional accessory. If you want to get it, you can use it. But if you get it out of the box, you don't need the pencil. And the ideal way to use it is with your finger. Mm. So let, let me ask you this. Okay. You, you have in the past complained about Touch ID on iPads and unlocking the iPad and the smart cover. So, so go through it and take me through that complaint again. So one of the nicest things about um, the smart cover uh, invention by Apple is it automatically unlock, unlocks your iPad if you don't have any notifications on the screen or if you disable notifications on the screen. So all you do is pull the cover off and your iPad is unlocked. You're on the home screen. You don't even have to touch the home button. And for people that want to see Apple get rid of the home button, that's one way of doing it. In fact, you can do many of the things on your iPad without touching the home button, multitasking with the four finger gestures, closing apps with the four finger gestures, all that kind of stuff works really well well, you can use your iPad without touching the, the button. Um, if you get a iPad with Touch ID and use Touch ID, um, you pull open the screen and then you have to press your thumb on it to unlock and then it unlocks. Um, that's fine for security purposes. Uh, I would like to see Apple enable Touch ID just for App Store purchases and not for unlocking the device if you're on, say, like a trusted Wi-Fi network or something like that. So the example would be I'm at home. I want to make it so that when I open up the smart cover on my iPad, my iPad automatically unlocks. And then it's available and usable to anybody in my home. But nobody can make purchases on iTunes or on the App Store without knowing my password or without having my fingerprint for Touch ID. Uh, I think that's a little more flexibility. That would be nice, uh, a little more granular control of when Touch ID applies because the smart cover uh, open to unlock feature is still available in settings and you can enable or disable it, but it's basically completely worthless without uh, if you have Touch ID enabled. And there is no option to just have Touch ID for the lock screen. I'm sorry, to just have it for purchases and not for the lock screen. So that's one of those things um, with this patent that Mikey uh, discovered this week. Uh, he found a, a concept for a future Apple Pencil where Apple might put Touch ID on the pencil itself, uh, which is a very interesting concept where basically um, you could have uh, some sort of area or whatever on the device where it could uh, scan your fingerprint and allow you to unlock the device without actually having to touch the home button. Um, clever idea. I don't know if it'll actually be implemented. Might be a little too difficult. Might be a little too... Uh, expensive, but uh, it's nice to see that Apple is looking to find ways to improve the first generation pencil. And I was thinking aloud when I saw that, that, that you know, this would fix Neil's problem because instead of having to 
touch the home button and wait for it to respond or even just touch the home button and he deal with it. He can just pick up the pencil and be ready to go. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good idea. I, I still think that untrusted Wi-Fi networks might be good, but... You know, I see why Apple doesn't do it, too, because it might be confusing for consumers as to when they have to use Touch ID and when they don't. Um, I think if you bury this stuff in the settings and make it so that power users can seek it out, um, that uh, that it's okay, and I think that it would work all right. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? But the other things that were in this were pretty cool, too, and one of the things that people have been clamoring for, and I totally understand, is... Uh, the ability to uh, use the back end of it as an eraser. Uh, instinctively, when you're using this and drawing, a lot of people will flip it around and try to use the back end of it as an eraser, and it does not work for that. So I think that's kind of a no-brainer um, that Apple could do relatively easily that would make a lot of people happy and make it more intuitive to use just based on how we use pencils. And yeah. the other thing was, um, obviously, you can remove the tip of the pencil uh, it comes with a spare if you wear it down or whatever. Um, but there, it, the patent had concepts for uh, swappable uh, nibs for the front of the pencil that you could use for different purposes. Like, for example, if you were drawing and wanted a little more friction with it, uh, something that would stick to the screen a little more, maybe something that would stick to the screen a little less, uh, you could get different tips that would be ideal for different use cases with the pencil. You could do a paintbrush with uh, bristles. Right. Um, all, all kinds of different ways that you could make it a more dynamic input device, which, again, going back to me talking about opening it up and, and allowing for more ways of interacting with your iPad, I think all this is great stuff. And I hope that Apple pursues it because um, while I don't think it will apply to everybody or even most iPad users, I think making the iPad the computer that you need, the most personal computer that you could have, uh, is really what makes this product stand out from a traditional computer. I have yet to use the Apple Pencil, so I leave it to you to, to tell me all about pencil news. Yeah, I mean, I, my handwriting is abysmal. I can't even read my own handwriting. So, you know, given my druthers, I would rather um, type anytime. Um, I did for years use a LiveScribe smart pen. Um, I, uh, when in my older days, was a newspaper reporter, and I don't like to take notes um, by hand, or I'm, I'm sorry, I don't like to take notes on a laptop when I'm interviewing somebody because it's very impersonal. Like if you're sitting down and somebody's telling you their life story or whatever um, and opening up to you and then I bring out my MacBook Pro and open up and now I have this screen in between us. It's like a physical barrier in between you. So there's something more intimate and more personal about just having a pen and writing down what they're saying and looking at them when they're speaking rather than staring at a laptop with, you know, this screen, this bright screen in your face and stuff like that. So I really enjoyed the uh, live scribe pen. What it did was it would record while I wrote and then remember that point in time uh, as I was writing. So I could go back to my notes, tap on them, and it would pick up from the recording there. So I could read my uh, chicken hand writing notes that I could barely read, but I could make out a few words and go, okay, that's where this person said that. I want to hear what she said there. So then I'll tap on it, and then I'll hear the full quote in full detail as it was recorded by the pen. Um, and obviously with the Apple Pencil, I'm sure that there are apps that do stuff like this uh, with an iPad for, for reporters out there who might want to carry around an iPad, um, which would uh, I would hope, you know, something like a, a iPad mini maybe gaining Apple support maybe later this year or next year or something like that uh, for more portability for those types of use cases. 
I, I think things like LiveScribe are, are probably, you know, they, they have cool applications, like you said, but I think they're probably done, that, that they're one of those kinds of features that can now be replaced by an iPad with an app. Yeah, I mean, back when I got my LiveScribe, you know, getting a laptop was still pretty expensive. You know, you're going to spend at least eight, $900 on a Windows machine or something like that. Um, and so I could see where at that point for a kid in school, you know, a $100 pen uh, might be more valuable and they might have a desktop computer at home, not a laptop, that kind of stuff. I know when I was in college, um, I had a desktop computer that I used primarily and I didn't bring a laptop to class. Nowadays, kids in college, I'm sure, all have laptops and that's just the way it is. So uh, the kids, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the value of it is probably greatly diminished. But I think for a, a niche market like that, like a reporter, um, something like, like a live scribe uh, still could have a lot of value for the situation that I described. But for most people, I think something like an Apple Pencil um, and an iPad would, you know, give them the drawing and then merging of the physical and digital um, in, in a way that uh, that would satisfy most customers. Now, last time we, we our episodes was sponsored by Mara and you said you were going to get it. Have you tried it out? No, I, I I need to get out more and exercise more. Frankly, I've been so busy, I haven't even had an opportunity. But it, I really enjoy the concept. You sloth. <laughs> so technology's changed the way we run, and and you you run with your smartphone, right? Um, I do now that I switch back to the uh, SE because it's smaller on my arm. But I got so tired of running with the success that I was just running with my watch for a while. But when you run with your smartphone, you can create running playlists and you can track your progress and things like that. Do you do any of that? Yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah I'll track my runs and uh, kind of see and, and I'll get audible updates about how fast I'm going and stuff like that. So you really should try out Mara and I'm, I'm expecting you will next time. Next time you'll actually have something to report. <laughs> yeah, if I can get out. <laughs> um, so, so Mara's hands-free and you talk to your earbuds and she uses voice commands. You talk about what kind of run you're going to do and ask questions about speed, pace, location, duration. And she talks back. She can even speak first. She tells you how you're doing and compares your past runs and records. And she warns you about changes in weather, which would be really helpful because today where I am, it is thunderstorming. We have a weather advisory in effect. And basically there's ground, cloud to ground lightning going on here. Not a time to go running. So you can see all your runs, your hotspots, and all of this stuff. And, and Mara recognizes what you've accomplished. And she can also be connected to Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Download Mara from mara.ai to download your free virtual running assistant on your iPhone or Amazon Alexa device today. So this whole voice-assisted world thing seems to be happening. It seems to be coming together. You know, we have Siri. We have the, um, the, the OK Google, Google Now. We have Amazon Alexa. And I've been seeing this for the past couple of weeks, but we've only really recently run an article on it and, and only recently seen more articles happening in the news about it. Uh, Viv, Viv.ai, mm-hmm. is, is the assistant put together by the team that worked on the original Siri. Right. And so, so originally, Siri, before it was an Apple purchase, did a lot more than she does today, right? Right. She, she could interpret your request and figure out what it was that you really needed. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you said, and here's a bad example, but if you said, I'm drunk, take me home, the old Siri would have called you a cab, right. <laughs> would have, would have called you an Uber. Right. And when, and, and post Apple purchase, a lot of those kinds of features and, and interpretations went away. And so the idea here is that the X Siri team is going to bring those features back and more with Viv. And the, the example that I've seen 
recently. Did you, you saw this one, right? Was the ordering the pizza example? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they, they put a bunch of people in a room and said, order a pizza and left it completely up to the, them shouting out what they wanted or saying what they wanted to the, um, to, to the microphone and, and basically having it work out where to order it from what place could handle all the different types of requests and handling the whole payment process without having to ever require a phone call. And that's, that's interesting because one of the details that I don't know is how they handled that payment process yet, but I'm interested to find out. There's a, there's a certain level of uh, creep factor with this stuff. Um, and you know, privacy concerns that are one of the chief reasons that Apple has stripped out a lot of the functionality of Siri. And there's even been talk about how some of the um, AI scientists who work on this stuff at Apple have been frustrated because Apple's own policies on collecting user data make it impossible for them to have learning machines or to learn more about um, what uh, what their customers are, are doing with the product, how they're using it. Um, and that's one of those things where companies like Facebook and Google and others are going to have kind of a leg up um, just because they're more willing to collect and share user data and trends and stuff like that um, and have seamless integration across products that Apple is more reluctant to do because um, they've kind of put a stake in the ground and said, uh, you know, we're going to be the anti-Google. We're going to be the company that v- vehemently uh, does everything that we can to pr- protect your privacy. Um, and that's kind of become a mantra and, and a, uh, a selling point for Apple's products. And that can curb development of things like Siri that um, are really dependent on learning your habits and learning things about you in order to get better. Yeah. And, you know, Google, for example, has, has never had, like you said, some of those strong restrictions on data gathering and data mining. You know, they, they recently announced that they're working in partnership with Britain's National Health Service and looking at the data there. And uh, supposedly it's anonymized. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're doing some things to try and restrict it. But, um, you know, that, isn't that kind of scary that if we leave this unchecked or if we leave this open to everyone to examine that, that these machines are going to continue to get smarter at the expense of our personal data? Yeah, that's that's the big debate there. If you want to have the machines get smarter, then you have to have some sacrifice of your personal data. And that is a reason why, I mean, you look at Google now and how it works compared to Siri, and it just works a lot better. It's faster, more reliable, um, gets you better results a lot of the time. Um, half the time, Siri can't understand me or says it can't do that right now or it can't connect or whatever. Um, part of that is because Siri is not located locally on the device. It has to do it through servers where it's anonymized, stuff like that. Um, and Apple has made some concessions, too. I mean, if you use the Today uh, swipe down view and notification center, it'll let you know how long it'll take to get to work and stuff. And it never asked you where you worked. So um, even Apple has uh, gone down that road a little bit um, with some of the creep factor there. Of course, you can turn those types of things off. But um yeah, I mean, I, that's just that's just the nature of this, that it's a question of privacy versus convenience. So do you use Google now? I do don't. you use the OK Google stuff? No, I don't. So you just I, said I mean, it works I have better, it, but, but you don't use it. Yeah, I mean, I, well, it's not... Because the problem is Siri is integrated on my iPhone. So that's the easiest way to do it. 
if I want to control my hue lights in my house, most of the time I'll just use my watch because it's on my wrist. Um, if I do it on my watch, it takes the watch five, ten seconds to process what I said, and then another five, ten seconds to get it done, but it gets it done. Um, if I use my phone, it tends to be a little bit quicker, but even then sometimes it says it can't see some of the lights or something, or, uh, sorry, I, I couldn't understand you or I'm not available right now or whatever. I mean, it's more reliable than my Xbox one, I guess, but, um, it's still not particularly impressive, um, in terms of its performance and certainly would hope that, uh, with rumors of, of Siri coming to OS 10 with an update this year, um, I don't know if the fix is to put it locally on the devices or whatever. And I'm sure a lot of that is limited by the processing power of the watch, that slowness as well. But regardless of what device you're on, series performance is not particularly great. So it's definitely an area where Apple could improve and not just, uh, you know, ordering you a pizza, but just being faster, just given responsiveness. Yeah. So I'm going to power on my Android phone later on today and just do some comparisons. And when we get Viv.ai, we're going to talk about that too, because I'm, I'm interested in this, this voice-driven future that it seems like we're creeping towards pretty quickly. I'm still upset that the um, iPad Pro 12.9-inch, for some reason, doesn't support uh, always on Hey Siri with, um, uh, without being on power. It makes absolutely no sense to me. I, I can't explain that. I really don't know why. <laughs> I have no idea why it doesn't work. I, I mean, it's the same chip, supposedly. It's got more RAM than the 9.7-inch model, but yet only the 9.7-inch model does it. Why Apple did that, I have no idea. So one of the other things about privacy that, that you know, there's, there's a guy on our forums who's been railing that Apple is falling behind because Apple has this restrictive policy on privacy. And his answer is that Apple should dismiss the whole privacy notion and simply data collect the hell out of stuff and that if they did, they could compete with Google. And one of his complaints was that this notion that retailers aren't adopting Apple Pay because Apple Pay keeps them from getting the information that they would have otherwise collected by a swipe or a chip card. So let me let me ask you first of all, you, you know a little bit about this. What kind of data are they collecting when you're using the traditional method of paying with a swipe or a chip card? Who, credit card companies or? Uh, retailers. Retailers? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, retailers would be able to, you know, they know what your credit card number is. They know what your name is. They know what you're buying. They know your habits. So um, they can start to build a catalog of, of what you're buying. Um, obviously... That, that that's why the, that's one of the reasons they really want to get their rewards program because then it's much easier for them to track what you're doing and what your habits are uh, as opposed to you know um, traditional transactions so if you become a, a, a Walgreens rewards member regardless of what payment method you use whether it's cash whether it's credit whether it's whatever um, they can have a better idea of who you are as a customer and what's going to appeal to you. And that can appeal to you in mailers that they send to your house, programs they want you to sign up for, um, discounts that they can offer you, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that builds, quote-unquote, loyalty uh, with the customer and allows them to potentially profit off of you more. So uh, that is one of the reasons why you know privacy, again, applies greatly um, in those situations, because when you sign up for these types of programs, you don't even realize half the time that you're giving up a level of privacy. Yeah. And, you know, they can not only tell 
things about your your habits uh, by what you have done, but they can also predict your future buying habits based on your history. Right. And and you know the famous example is the one where Target, who, who gathers all this kinds of information, started sending coupons for diapers and and newborn goods to a sixteen year old, and her father was quite irate, and it turned out that she was in fact pregnant and and that he didn't know and she didn't know, but Target knew because of her buying habits. Yeah, that's, uh, and I, not everybody really Talked even, about your creep factor there. But, right, exactly. Uh, not, not everybody even really understands how they collect all this data and the extent to which it goes. Um, you know, most obvious example would be Google a product once and have its ads show up for eternity. Um, and then I remember a few years ago, uh, it was actually four years ago during the presidential election and somebody, uh, emailed me and was complaining because they didn't like Mitt Romney and they were getting a ton of Mitt Romney ads on our website and we didn't accept any it, Mitt Romney ads or ads yeah, we, just go through Google AdSense. <laughs> so, you know, my guess is this guy really hated Mitt Romney and wanted to read about Mitt Romney and was probably had like a Google news alert set up for Mitt Romney. And their algorithm said, this guy really wants to read about Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney said, I really want to advertise to that guy. And so everywhere he went, he, which one of the places he went was Apple Insider, he was getting Mitt Romney ads. And he was offended by it, thinking that like we had personally brokered something with the Romney campaign. We're targeting him. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, <laughs> nope, that, that's kind of the way these things work, man. You know, you're, you're Googling this guy, you're reading stories about him, and that shows up and is tracked. And it gets shared from one service to another service. And Facebook knows so much about you, and Google knows so much about you, and just run down the list. Yeah, and I don't know that Google even cares if you're pro or for or pro or against something. And so, if you're just reading the the anti Mitt Romney articles, you'd still probably get served the pro Mitt Romney ads. Who knows? Who knows how that works? I mean, you know, I'm sure they have to work something out with the uh, with the buyer and the campaign too, where they get a guarantee that they're going to have people that are actually interested and don't just hate them. So, <laughs> um, I, but I, I mean, I have no idea how that secret sauce works behind the scenes, and and nobody really does, and that's part of what makes it so scary. Like, how does Target know so much about you? Totally. But uh, so one of the interesting things that we're writing about is this guy's position was Apple should totally give up on privacy. And in order to data collect, and only then would retailers adopt them. But we just announced that, uh, you know, ran the news that Kohl's is now an Apple Pay retailer that's linked rewards and store cards into one in one transaction. So they've got when you ring out through your Apple Pay enabled store card that uh, rewards and everything else goes through as well at the same time. So they they've got that information, and uh, other other uh, companies can then follow. That, that this should no longer be the restriction that this guy thinks it is. It's one of those things where Apple is just kind of the neutral bystander. Um, consumers, I mean, here's here's the thing. Google was trying to do a good thing by bypassing credit card companies because credit card companies, let's be honest, are pretty terrible. But the thing that Google didn't consider is no matter how terrible credit card companies are, people like their credit card companies. They like the rewards they get. They like the wait, benefits of wait, having wait, the cards. Wait, wait, wait. No, they don't. They don't? You may like that you get some kind of reward, even if the rewards aren't great, and they, they typically aren't. You're enjoying that you get them because, you know, that's it's more than not getting them. But I don't know anyone who has great love for their credit card company. Because they put themselves in debt? I mean... It's not the credit card company's it, it, fault. It's not the credit company's fault, but they, they all suck. Well, they're but all you ripping you off you if you don't pay your bill on time. Yeah. 
So, I mean, all I'm saying is you look at Google Wallet before Apple Pay came out, and they tried to ba- bypass the credit card companies. You by aren't going to ever dip- bypass the credit card companies the same way you aren't ever going to bypass wireless carriers my unless point, you build your own. My point is people right. genu- generally like credit cards. They apply for new ones. They look for ones. I mean, you can go to a website like Fat Wallet or whatever where there's entire mm-hmm. discussions where people go right. on there and they like as a badge of honor in their profile signature have pictures of the cards that they have and stuff like that. People like their credit cards. I disagree with you. I think that there's there's some amount of status to to getting a platinum this or a sure. sapphire that or whatever it is. It makes but, people feel you know, the black card for example, but let me let me give you an example of how ridiculous it is with credit card companies. I have a Capital okay. One uh, Quicksilver, and uh, I have a very thin uh, wallet. And Capital One Quicksilver, when I first got it, uh, had oh uh, the raised numbers that you the don't raised yeah. numbers on there, yeah. And so I looked into this, and it turned out the reason Capital One started introducing raised numbers on the card is because their customers said it felt cheap that it didn't have raised numbers on there. And I read people saying they were embarrassed to take somebody out to dinner because when they put the card in to pay for the dinner, it didn't have the raised numbers, and it looked like a cheaper card. So I mean, people take this crap very seriously. And people like their credit cards. And so it's the same thing with these reward things. You know, you get these loyalty reward programs and people actually do get benefits from it, just like people do actually get benefits from their credit card company. If you're responsible and you pay your bill on time every month and you don't have credit card debt and you accrue points, like I have an Amazon card and I get three times the points for every purchase on Amazon. But the vast majority of people that have carry cards do not pay their bill on time every month. Do not pay the balance down to zero. But that's month. an even larger they discussion. That's an even larger discussion about irresponsible financial uh, practices in the United States. That's not really. That's not really pertinent to Apple Pay. I don't think. Okay, we're pretty far afield here. But the the point is, is that Kohl's has gone ahead and linked their store card to their rewards card. So that they gather the information they and want. I, I don't see that as a privacy issue. I don't see it as a privacy issue for Apple because this is an opt-in for consumers and it's something that consumers like. People right, they chose like, to carry the store card anyway. Right. The store card is now optional in Apple Pay. Exactly. And people like these store cards, whether or not you agree with them or not, and the ability that they give the, the business to track you and understand you, if the mm-hmm. customer wants to share that information and get the benefits from it, that's the consumer's decision. And Apple Absolutely. is just an Apple is just an innocent bystander at that point. They're not encouraging it, but they're allowing it because it's something that makes their product better and people want. Yes. So what do, do you have any store cards? Um yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a Best Buy account. Um, okay. And they just ask for my phone number when I go there. Yep. Yeah, I, I carry the Target card. Right. And, and I only, oh, you, you know, you, you only use it at Target. Fine, whatever. And uh, oh, so you have a, you have a Target specific credit card. I have a Target specific credit card, and it's five uh, percent off whatever purchase it is. Got it. Yeah. See, so I have an Amazon credit card. I don't have a Best Buy credit card. I just have a Best Buy My Rewards or whatever the heck they call it. Yeah. Um, but with with Amazon, I have the Amazon credit card through you know whoever Visa, Chase, whatever it is, and they give you three times the points that you would normally get for purchases from Amazon.com. And I purchase enough from Amazon that it makes sense for me financially to use it there because every third or fourth credit card bill, I get enough money that I can get something. F- quote unquote free from Amazon because I was using that card through them. And same thing with you and Target. You're getting 5% off your purchases. And so if you're paying your credit card bill on time with Target, what is the disincentive for you to not get that card? Like why would right. you why would you not get that card? It's a no-brainer at that point. Pretty much. So Roger ran a story. 
that says that that despite the Apple Watch being able to do more, that fitness bands are vastly outselling those smartwatches. That uh, that three out of four wearables owned by Americans are fitness trackers, and that that Fitbit and um, that Fitbit leads this. That the Fitbit controls sixty one point seven percent of the U.S. install base, and the Apple Watch is at six point eight percent. I mean, when you look at the products that that Fitbit sells, there's uh, tiny things that you keep in your pocket. Um, there are things that you wear on your wrist. They have a whole variety of things. They're cheaper. Um, they do many of the well, functions that that Apple Watch users like, like notifications from your phone and stuff like that. Um, they're, they're they're close to the retail price of the Sport Watch when you start looking at some of them. Right. You know, but they're, they're what, what 200 is fit- and. 250 and, and getting up there. What is Fitbit's best seller, though? It's probably the Fitbit One, the little thing you carry in your pocket, the one they've had. I for don't think so. No, I, you can I get think that thing for like 70 bucks. No one wears that. No one has that. You don't think so? Just the no, step I tracker? don't think so. I the the most popular items anymore are the ones with heart rate in them. So people are going for in, in Fitbit. It's the uh, the Flex, which is the the five LED or four LED band that doesn't have heart rate, or the Charge HR. Mm-hmm. Um, the Alta is still too new soon to tell, and I don't know that the Blaze is going anywhere. Um, I see very These, few This data is not sales. This data is what is being used in the market right now. Right. So you're looking at a legacy of Fitbit in which a lot of people, like my mother, for example, still uses the Fitbit One in her pocket and carries that around. Mm. So when you're looking at actual usage of people... Um, that that uh, have already purchased something and have integrated it into their life, I would bet that a large share of it are exceptionally dumb devices that aren't even seen, let alone really worn in the traditional sense, just something you carry in your pocket. You know, I, I think Fitbit's trouble is um, as more and more smartphones get their own built-in step trackers and make it easier for users, what there's a lot less incentive to have this stuff. Now, the heart rate monitors, yes, maybe you take it to the gym and you use that or whatever, um, but a lot of people don't want to wear this stuff during the day too. Like you look at a pebble, you can get a pebble for like a hundred bucks, but it looks geeky and it looks, um, well, that's, that's been the move to the more fashionable looking devices. You know, that's where, where Jawbone's been trying to up their game. That's where Misfit introduced the Ray. And that's why, uh, Fitbit brought out the Alta is because they want to try and bring these things that are full-time daily wear and somewhat fashionable. So what I would say is compare the Fitbit Alta and its performance to the Apple Watch. Now, this doesn't have a breakdown of that, so we don't really know. My well, guess is... too new a device, too. Yeah, but, I mean, they have ones that they put out before that, the the, the Blaze and the, the wearable they had last year. The, the, uh, the Blaze couple- and Alta were both new in January at CES. Um, last year, it was Charge HR. They, di- they didn't have a fashionable device before now. Right, but they had a wrist-worn thing, so they. I think. I think if you look at if you. Think, I think if you look at the the actual ones that are worn and seen externally, uh, I bet that the Apple Watch is performing much better than these than this data indicates. I'm. I'm not sure. I mean, looking around, I see a ton of Fitbits on people's wrists every day. Uh, I, I see a lot less in terms of Jawbone, and I see almost no Misfit, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the Nike fuel band's completely gone away. But I see a ton of Fitbits out there. And I don't see nearly as many Apple Watches. So just, just um, you know, my observation skills, which are not data compared with this data, is, yeah, I, I think I agree with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that it's, it's in a market in transition anyhow. And I think that, you know, um, while the products are um, very simple right now, 
Like you can get the Fitbit Alta, which has a screen on it and will give you notifications and all that for $129. Um, the Charge HR is $150. Uh, the Flex, which doesn't do some of the notifications and stuff, is only 100 bucks. Yeah. So, um, And the Flex is one of their very most popular ones. I, I expect the Alta to take over that just because the, the move up to 130 from from 100 is not that great. Yeah, the Alta is, you know, has a more proper screen on it, can give you notifications, that kind of stuff. Looks a hell of a lot nicer, too. Uh, yeah, I, I tested the Surge, which is still $250, and I don't know why. I mean, it wasn't a bad product, I guess. Um, President but, Obama wore the Surge. Yeah, I, I, I don't really see um, that one being a big seller. Um, wh- why is the Blaze cheaper than the Surge, by the way? Partly because they're trying to figure out why the surge wasn't a big seller. And and my two points of why that is, my speculations there, are look and price. So they went ahead and tried to solve for look and price. Now, I don't know that they achieved that, but they certainly lowered the price, right? Is I mean, the Blaze a good-looking device? I'm not convinced. you got to think that these Fitbits that are selling are not the surge or the Blaze. You no, know, they're not. They're going to be the, the flex or the charge. Yeah, and, and those things are pretty ugly. And yes, yes, they um, are, which is why they came up with Alta. Yeah. You know, I, I think this is kind of like um, digital cameras circa 2009, 2010. You know, people were starting to get smartphones with cameras in them, but they weren't that good. And people still own digital cameras. And then it just kept getting better and better on the smartphone front. And people needed their digital camera less and less and less. And I think, you know, four or five years from now, as the market matures and as the products become cheaper and more capable, um, you're going to see stuff like uh, Pebble and Fitbit either have to evolve greatly from where they are right now or uh, maybe get bought out or, or something like that. But I, I just can't see something like the Fitbit Alta um, being the future of this wearables market. I mean, it's just it's ugly and pretty basic. That's the pretty one. And, 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 but like, you know, the Fitbit CEO was saying something the other day that he well, thinks he, that there's he a, Ed Colligan did, didn't he? He was saying that, you know, um, keeping it simple is what consumers want. Um, people are too confused. And I, I don't think he's wrong. I think there's some, some truth to that as the market stands right now. But, uh, if you think three, four, five years down the road where you can get a really nice looking Apple watch for maybe 200, 250 bucks with integrated LTE that you can leave your phone at home, that Siri works instantly, you know, um, obviously that's a lot of dreaming there, but that's just the way it is. You know, that that's that's you, you've been drinking the good stuff. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think that these products are, are going to um, have that kind of uh, lasting impact. And I think that Fitbit. Because especially when you think about the basic capabilities of Fitbit, just step tracking, right? That's what a lot of people like to use it for, step tracking. Um, and every phone that you own right now or you know, can buy at the store will do step tracking for you, including an iPhone. So the, the old Ed Colligan quote was uh, something to the effect of these people aren't going to come in and walk in here. No, that's the old Motorola quote, right? Yeah. That, that these computer companies aren't going to walk in here and figure this thing out. And the James Park quote is that Apple is taking the wrong approach to wearables by launching a computing platform. And that smartwatch makers are trying to cram every possible feature in since people don't know what they need a smartwatch for. And let's be real. There's a lot of problems with the Apple Watch. First and foremost, third-party apps. It's a pain in the ass to open them up to get to them. Um, they're slow. They don't work very well. They crash a lot. 
quite frankly, I would be fine with an Apple Watch without any third-party apps on it because I think they're all junk right now. And so, when they're so all junk... Primarily for notifications. I imagine that's what most people are doing. Notifications, here's what works well on the so Apple Watch. The, so any of these Fitbits that have the screen on them can do notifications. The Alta can do notifications. The Blaze, you know, these things can do them. And right? that's why they're still popular and that's why they're still dominating the market. All right. Now, I think there's a few things that the Apple Watch does really well that uh, in its first generation that that I think are great. Like, for example, uh, I'm a big fan of complications on the screen. Um, they're instantly glanceable information. They're right there. It's available. It makes it convenient. It makes it customizable. It works. That's something that Apple absolutely nailed. Uh, notifications, again, uh, works great. It, responses with dictation and voice while a little slow. Um, like I was saying before about using Siri and stuff, needs to get faster, but it's there and it works. Uh, as you start to dig deeper into the UI, it gets a little worse. Like uh, the uh, the sending messages on there, whatever they call that, the uh, you know force touch messages. Who cares about that? Yeah. Uh, the glances, uh, if they're third party glances, a lot of times, or even the first party ones, a little slow. You'll swipe up and you get the spinning wheel telling you it's trying to load up the weather or whatever. And then things really, really go downhill. Once you press the digital crown button and go to the home screen where all your apps are. And I mean, it's just navigating through that is not great. Opening the apps is slow. Um, it's a pain. And at that point, you're just better off taking your phone out of your pocket and opening it up there. There's not a lot of incentive for it. So there are a few things that the Apple Watch does great and does it even better than uh, at these Fitbit devices. But the key thing that the Apple Watch does well, notifications and, and information, uh, is already being done well by Fitbit. And that's why, um, and in addition to price, uh, you're not really seeing um, market domination in that larger market. Now, if you were to narrow it down to high-end, smarter devices that do heart rate, have a screen, can run apps and all that, um, Apple's dominating that market. But if you're looking at the wearables market as uh, you know, it's like it's like looking at the early smartphone market and including feature phones in it. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep following all of this, and um, you know, Neil, where can where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at this is Neil N E I L, and uh, you can read me at Apple Insider. Great. Well, if Neil gets an Android Wear watch or a Fitbit, we'll tell you <laughs> all about it next week on the Apple Insider podcast. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Mara, a hands-free virtual running assistant that uses cutting-edge voice recognition to help coach you to better runs. Play music, get updates on your location, pace, and weather, and compare your current speed with past runs without ever stopping to look at your phone. Using your earbuds, Mara can hear your commands and put them into action. And Mara can now be connected to any of your Amazon Alexa-enabled devices like the Echo Dot or Tap. To download your new running partner for free, visit mara.ai today. Run with a sidekick. Make every mile count.